Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Tonight, we're going to be talking about money again, and tonight, specifically, we're going to be talking about monetary systems. And we're going to get into the modern monetary system, at least as it pertains to the United States. Um, in talking about monetary systems, you've got to go back pretty far to think about how money has been used and created in the past. So the last time we discussed money, we talked about what an incredible invention it was. And it's gone through a lot of iterations throughout the years. But throughout Europe and other parts of the world, we've realized that there are certain things that are scarce. And so they've typically been used for money. Uh, and, and this happened in a lot of the colonial powers. Um, you know, if you, you want to think about that as sort of the start of American history in some sense, or United States history in some sense starts with these European colonial powers. And one of the reasons that these colonial powers were out seeking to build empire was to find gold. Gold was used as a currency because it is stable and doesn't corrode. Uh, you can't easily produce more of it, and gosh, people have tried for a lot of years, right, to turn lead into gold. That's the whole idea of alchemy. And that was one of the driving factors. Now there were others, right? Um, setting up these trade routes and trading with places that were far away and having a strong navy, um, that gave a certain level of security and supply chains to these countries. So I don't mean to say they were just looking to find gold and, and nothing else. But certainly when they found it, they weren't shy about continuing to take it. And so many discussions about currency talk about the gold standard. So whereas in earlier uh, generations, gold was physically traded, people carried around gold coins or silver coins or whatever, different sizes that represented dom- denominations, or they'd take the gold and dilute it a certain amount in... in uh, and the alloy that they used so that, you know, maybe it was half gold or 100% gold or whatever. Um, eventually, you step step forward to this idea that you're going to use paper money, but you're going to back that paper money by gold. Now, I'm kind of papering over a lot of history here. We're just talking about the general idea and, and sort of the thought process that leads to the gold standard. So if you don't have a standard for your currency, such as... Uh, gold or silver or something like that, then your currency is called fiat currency because its value comes by fiat. Fiat meaning the dictate of a government, of a sovereign. So the United States government says the United States dollar is money, so it's money. The most valuable thing about the United States dollar is that you can pay taxes on it and nothing else. Um, But also the fact that it's widely accepted as a stable store of currency. So the gold standard was what started out in the United States, um, or at least something along those lines, right? During the the Continental, or during the uh, War for Independence, the Revolutionary War, the government had printed a tremendous amount of dollars, and they were worth essentially nothing. And the United States took on a lot of loans, and got the United States, and the United States got a good credit rating by paying back its loans. 
Um, and so other countries started to trust in the dollar. But to really make it something people could trust, we needed it to be backed by something. There are a number of different ways that currency were created. created. Sometimes there were central banks. Sometimes there weren't central banks. Um, and commercial banks at different times have been able to produce their own currencies. But as, or at least their own paper money, right? It was, it was all um, dollar-denominated currency. But as things started to standardize, we started to back our currency with gold. And gold came before the current Federal Reserve System and existed during it as well. And like we said, people like gold because it's rare. You can't just go find a bunch of it. It's durable. Um, and so what a dollar would represent in the gold standard is a fixed quantity of gold or silver, whatever your standard is. Um, there's been other systems that have been attempted. One is called a bimetallic system, which would be two different metals, so typically silver and gold, but there's no reason it couldn't be gold and nickel or silver and platinum or whatever. Um, the, the problem with this system is that the relative value of two metals are going to fluctuate. You will find mines of different materials. Uh, you'll, there are industrial uses for gold. There are industrial uses for silver. There's a lot of industrial uses for silver. It's a very, very good conductor, as is gold. And, um, you know, it can be used in um, in linings and things to have certain antibacterial properties, antimicrobial properties. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons to have silver alloys for certain things. It's used for uh, dishware, right? Silverware is kind of the, the fancier uh, type of utensils to use. And so because of that, you know, if there's a lot of demand for silverware or a little bit of demand for silverware or whatever other industrial use, the relative price of gold and silver are going to fluctuate. And that makes a bimetallic standard pretty hard. Because with a bimetallic standard, you've got to have a fixed relationship between the two things. So if you're saying, well, yeah, this uh, dollar is worth either one ounce of gold or five ounces of silver, maybe that's good one year and then the next year, well, then, you know, you just go and you, you make your trades and at the, you know, Federal Reserve or whatever, and you go get a bunch of silver because it's advantageous right now. Now there's not enough silver available, or maybe there's too much, and you take all your silver and turn it into gold through dollars. Um, so bimetallic standards are hard, and that's why you typically hear people talk about the gold standard. Like I said, metals have industrial uses, right? And because of these industrial uses, there's demand for metals outside of just use in currency. And that affects the inherent value. Now, if you remember back when we were talking about what causes inflation, um, it has to do with the value of money against the quantity of money that exists. So if you have a fixed quantity of gold, so we'll just talk about gold, not other metals. If you have a fixed quantity of gold that your dollars are backed by, so let's say you have a million dollars, and that represents one million ounces of gold, um, you can never create more dollars because there's a fixed amount of gold, there's a fixed rate between dollars and gold. What happens then is that more money, more people come to the country, either through immigration or through birth, and the population grows. The economy grows as a result of a bigger population, right? at least on average. And so you have this growth in, in the economy's size, or at least the, the functional economy's size, but the value of the currency itself is deflationary, right? Inherently, because you're not producing more of it. 
And so while it's a stable store of value, it's not a stable representation of the overall economy. And that can be problematic because as we talked about in a in a situation where you're expecting deflation, you're not incentivized to purchase things. You're incentivized to put off purchases as long as you can because your money will be worth more in the future than it will be now. And so, you know, on the balance between inflation and deflation, inflation, at least in small quantities, helps grow the economy. Now, if we're talking about hyperinflation, you know, 20, 30, 40% or 500% inflation per year or 10,000% per year or per day or whatever, that's a whole different story, right? At that point, um, you know, the economy is in sort of a, a really bad situation because of inflation. So I'm not saying that inflation is inherently good or deflation is inherently bad or anything like that. But keeping it in the middle uh, is good and inflating the currency at the same rate the population grows roughly speaking, I think is probably a bit of a sweet spot. Um, I don't I don't think that's exact, but that's not too far off, right? At least that, that growth rate should be in a, in a reasonable range. And so what do they do? Well, after the Great Depression, we were on the gold standard. We took in all the private gold, put it in Fort Knox, which was then new. And once all the private gold outside of jewelry had been impounded and people given dollars, they changed the ratio between dollars and gold. They inflated the currency. Now, it's pretty easy to argue that, from a practical standpoint, that was necessary. It, it got the economy growing, at least in terms of dollars, even if it didn't grow as fast, but it unlocked the system, right? The, the, the system was kind of locked up during the Depression. So injecting liquidity in the form of dollars into the market helped to bring the system forward and help things start to move again. Now, it did take a while for things to come back, and inflation was high for a while because they had intentionally inflated the currency, but it, it helped. It was a reasonable thing to do to fight the Depression. And that has to do with a lot of debt destruction and stuff. Now, the thing is, if you're on the gold standard, but the rate of conversion between gold and dollars isn't fixed, you really have to think about how that's any different than a fiat currency. Um, if Congress can meet at any time and change that ratio, and it's beneficial to change that ratio at some time, then the relationship between dollars and gold is somewhat arbitrary. I mean, it's as stable as things go, but the price of your money, the value of your money, is going to be very tied up in politics. One, um, maybe one group in the government, one faction wants to show that they're fiscally responsible. Um, and so they do that by inflating the currency so that there's a, no more deficit. Now, uh, probably not a fiscally responsible thing to do in most cases, uh, maybe in any case, but you could do that and you could say, look, under my administration, the debt went down to zero. And that would look okay, but you know that that's that's what happens when when you allow politics a little bit too much inf influence in the production of money supply, and um, and that's kind of the risk. It's something that's happened, right? You you know still hear people in in certain circles talking about the exchequer of Britain and and some of the dangers there. It's um, and and you'll hear these same criticisms towards the Federal Reserve Bank, which. Uh, 
which is the next thing we're about to get into. That's really the the bulk of our discussion today. Um, but you end up with this situation, right, where there's a lot going on that can affect the value of currency. And so between the fact that the gold standard is either deflationary or it's it's tied up in politics and can inflate the same way as currency, I think from a practical standpoint, it's not significantly different, right? Fiat currency and gold standard doesn't seem to me to be, in analysis, necessarily significantly different. Um, if if they are different, it's in a way that's probably not good for economic growth, and that is the inherent deflationary nature of it. Um, so that's the uh, that that's kind of the challenge, right? Um, and so you you go from this gold standard, right? And there was an economic system built on that um, global economic system throughout, you know, at probably a course of whatever eighty years or something. And there's World War One, and then the Roaring Twenties, and then the Great Depression, and then World War Two. And World War Two caused so much debt in Europe, so much debt in Asia, even a lot of debt in the United States, which fared far better economically than other countries during World War Two for you know a variety of reasons, but the lack of fighting on our land um, this was one of the biggest. So because of all that, the the old monetary system wasn't going to work anymore, and so they went to Bretton Woods, I think it's Connecticut, and um, came up with a new system, right? And that's the Bretton Woods system. That's the way the economy runs today. When the Bretton Woods system was put into place, it set up monetary exchanges between countries and set up a, a system for international trade. Now, at this time, um, this happened after World War II. In um, the 30s, the United States had moved from the gold standard to the silver standard. Then during the Nixon administration in the 70s, um, the United States was moved removed completely from the silver standard, and then we were no longer based on uh, hard currency specie, you know, uh, a metallic monetary standard. That decline in use of silver certificates or the silver standard had been ongoing for a long time. I mean, a lot of major steps in that direction had already been taken in the Kennedy administration. In 1963, so there was this this transition out of the this this metal standard. Now, that is the sort of the backdrop of the change from having a metallic standard for our currency to a, um, a fiat currency, a fully fiat currency. The Federal Reserve starts a lot earlier. Um, the Federal Reserve was a an idea that formed after the 1907 panic. This was a it started with a large fall in the stock market, which turned into bank runs, which turned into banks going belly up, and so it was a pretty bad situation. And um, there was a number of there were a number of ideas, one involving bonds from the government. Um, another was the idea of a central bank, and a lot of people were opposed to central banks. 
And one of the guys who was opposed to central banks went to Europe, studied Germans, Germany's banking system, and thought that it actually was a pretty good fit for what we needed to do. And so they had some meetings in uh, Jekyll Island, Georgia, which you know gives rise to just all kinds of great conspiracy theories. <laughs> they went to Jekyll Island with a number of major bankers and um, government officials, and they, they planned out the creation of the Federal Reserve System. Um, and now, I know you're probably thinking the Federal Reserve Bank is just a plot device in Die Hard 3, but that's not true. There's more to it than what happened in Die Hard 3, although that is a fun movie. Um, to understand the whole point of a central bank, or the Federal Reserve in particular, we have to understand fractional reserve banking. Okay, So a minute ago I talked about the idea of a bank run. People run and try to get all their money from the bank, and the bank doesn't have enough money in its vaults to give it to the people, and so the bank becomes unsolvent. Um, now there's a few ways that we deal with this. One is through the Federal Reserve System, and one is through the FDIC. And so we'll talk about um, the Federal Reserve a little bit, um, but I, I will mention the FDIC and, and talk about the, that in just a second, uh, just so that we, we understand how that fits into the bigger picture. But let's talk about fractional reserve banking, because if you understand this concept, you'll understand the whole point. And, and there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff about this that, that you know, doesn't sit right with people, and, and I think it's because it's an unusual concept to think through. I think that's probably the biggest reason. But there are some arguments certainly against it, and there are some arguments for it. And, um, you know, I think if you understand it, you can at least make an informed decision on it. So fractional reserve banking works this way. Um, the bank takes some of the money that it has in deposit and issues loans. That's it, right? So you deposit $5,000 in the bank, and the bank takes some of that $5,000 and loans it out to someone else with interest. And... If you know they get all their money paid back, then they make money on the interest, and you get your five thousand dollars back. In fact, if interest rates are reasonably high, like they were, you know, say in the early '90s, you'll even make a few percent as well, because they're going to be loaning it out at a higher rate. Currently, with the way things work, um, interest rates are so low that savings accounts tend to have very, very low interest rates. But there, there was a time you could make four or five percent on a regular savings account. So um, these loans increase the money supply, and the reasoning is really simple. Let's say that your five thousand dollars was the only five thousand dollars, and or let's say a million dollars. Let's say your bank has a million dollars in deposit, and it's allowed to loan ninety percent of it out. Okay, so out of that million dollars, they make a loan of nine hundred thousand dollars. So that's in someone else's account now. Well, the bank can then loan 90% of that 900000 out, and it's 810000 Following that, the next loan would be 729000 656100 uh, 590000 490 and so on, right? It, it just goes on. And I'm talking about this as though it's a single loan, but it could be multiple loans, right? It, it could be nine loans for $100,000 or, you know, two for $450,000. It, it doesn't really matter. What happens is... Um, you know, it, it, it just kind of gets split up more and more. And so if you, if you keep f taking a fraction out of this total million dollars, it takes 
182 loans before the value gets under one cent of that loan, right? 90% of that original amount. And so from that $1 million with a 90% um, loan, loan amount, which is, or you'd call that a 10% reserve requirement, the total amount of money from that original million dollars becomes $10 million. Um, if you want to figure this out, it, it's, you know, it, it's kind of a calculus thing, right? You take this, this thing to the limit, and what you'll figure out is it's the reciprocal of the fraction that is returned. So, for example, um, one one tenth in the reserved in the in the reserve the the part that the bank doesn't loan out becomes a multiplier of ten, right? So, if you save one tenth, you get ten times. If you save one one hundredth, you get a hundred times as much money created. That's called the money multiplier effect, and that happens because you only have to hold in reserve a fraction of the overall currency. Uh, and so the theory is that, in general, people don't come in and say, I want all my money out of the bank right now. And when they do, it's usually just one person. And so by putting a reserve limit, the banks are required to have a certain amount of money in reserve. They can service general day-to-day -day and the occasional person closing their account. But there is the possibility that a rumor goes around that a bank is going to be insolvent in the future. If that happens, a lot of people go and get their money from the bank, and it'll turn the bank insolvent just from, from that, even if the bank was fine before. That's actually the plot to It's a Wonderful Life, uh, at least a portion of the plot, right? There's a, there's a run on the bank, and, and uh, the main character has to give all his honeymoon money so that he can keep the bank in business. Um, so that is the idea of fractional reserve banking and that's how a bank run works you know if you've got 90% uh, of your money loaned out and you have 10% reserve if someone asks for 10.1% of the money on reserve you don't have the money to give them now your bank has gone bust right um, and that that was a real problem the federal reserve was created to be a lender of last resort they call get this the discount window right this is the Federal Reserve will loan to any member institution at a certain rate, and that's that's sort of the base rate that's set for the overall economy, right? Because that's the the lowest performing money you can, or, or, the cheapest um, loan you can get in some sense, right? And they're usually usually looking to have a higher rate when they loan out money. So if they have to go to the discount window, they're they're kind of at the lowest. And so they'll do that to make sure they meet their reserve requirements. That idea of having this lender of last resort, a bank that will lend you money, even if it's not a great deal for you, they're still going to lend you money. Um, by doing that, the, the bank is able to stay solvent even if there's a run on the bank. And that is a huge deal because it prevents systemic bank runs like happened in 1907. And 1907 wasn't the only year this happened. It seemed to happen pretty regularly in history. Now, I'll mention now the FDIC again and explain how that fits into the system and stability of the United States banking sector. And I think that's one of the things the United States really did right. Um, so to be a licensed bank in the United States, you have to be a member of the Federal Reserve System, at least over a certain size. When you become a member of the Federal Reserve System, you have to buy shares in the Federal Reserve, and the money the Federal Reserve makes, you get a small, a certain fixed percentage of that, uh, or a certain amount, right, as, as a dividend. So the money comes from the banks, and it goes back to the banks based on their membership. 
Now, if you listen to a lot of these videos, they say the membership is secret, but if you go look on the Federal Reserve site, they're pretty clear about who the members are. And of course, all the major banks are involved because it's required by law. Um, the FDIC, though, is also required by law. Banks are required to be members of the FDIC and have FDIC insurance on most of their deposits. They're required to pay into FDIC insurance on a regular basis um, based on what some percentage of the money they have in there. And so it's a very large fund of money that's been growing for years and years and decades of um, money that will make sure that if a bank is insolvent, that you'll get at least whatever that FDIC limit is. And the government um, runs it as a separate institution, sort of the way the post office is. However, there is a government backing on the FDIC, right? The Federal Reserve will also back it, right? Like there's, there will be money in the system if needed, if there's a major bank run. Typically what happens if a bank does become insolvent, the FDIC will come in on a Friday. They'll negotiate a sale for that bank to some other bank by the weekend and they'll open back up and the new bank will usually have enough reserve funds and things that the FDIC's um, insurance is, is not really needed and typically there's no loss of funds even if you're over the limit whatever it is $250,000 in your account typically you're not even going to lose any money above and beyond that although if you have FDIC insurance, insurance on your account type that's the that's the most you can be guaranteed in one account. Uh, savings and checkings accounts do have FDIC insurance. Some money market accounts do, most don't. Um, stock accounts and stuff like that obviously don't. So FDIC insurance, um, you know, it's something you obviously want to check for and, and make sure you're getting if you're opening a bank account in the United States. Um, but that's that, that's really what you need to know about the FDIC, and that's its place in the United States banking system. It provides a tremendous amount of stability because there's no point in running a bank anymore because your money is guaranteed, at least up to an amount that's large enough that for most people, they don't have that much in the bank. Um, so going back to this idea of fractional reserve banking, this whole idea of money creation kind of freaks people out, especially when you start thinking about interest because you have to pay interest, and you created this money, and it seems like the debt will balloon forever with a fractional reserve system. Um, and so interest growth means that the outstanding loans require more money, and that's usually okay because the economy is growing, and so it's a way of producing, um, producing money. The Federal Reserve will set an inflation target, which is around 2% typically, and it's going to use lending rates and reserve percentages to try to achieve that rate of inflation. Uh, and so when you think about this, like uh, this money, you know, these loans, it's creating more money and all this debt and stuff. As loans are paid off, that money is destroyed and that debt is destroyed. And you, you get rid of this outstanding balance. And so that debt... Um, it doesn't balloon forever. Now, I read a pretty compelling argument recently that um, private debt that's held by, call them industrial companies, countries that, companies that aren't in the so-called fire sector, they're not finance, financiers, they're not insurance companies, they're not you know, anything like that. They're, they're producing something, they're providing some direct service, right? They're making burgers, they're building computers, they're 
producing cups. And then personal interest, uh, personal debt like credit card debt, um, home loans, and stuff like that. All those are going to be limited based on your ability to pay, or at least what you estimate is your ability to pay. But for loans to financial institutions, loans and interest are how they make their money. So where the balance of the debt is really makes a difference. Um, so keep that in mind, right? There there may be a pretty significant difference in what makes sense with fractional reserve banking and debt and stuff like that, You know where, where these loans generate interest based on who's borrowing the money and for what purpose. Um, you know, at some point I'm going to talk about leverage buyouts in another kind of ec- economy series here and um, or another part of the economy series. And like leverage buyouts are an example of something that probably doesn't provide any benefit to the economy, um, but is, is, you know, taking advantage of this sort of system. Um, so just, just kind of think about that, right? The, the money is created. It can also be destroyed through the same fashion by repaying loans. Um, you know, money is going to circulate through the system over time and, economic growth and inflation generally are going to take care of things. There are other ways that, you know, debt is removed um, besides paying for it, right, in economic growth. It can also end up in bankruptcy or the entity that, you know, if the entity or person holding it and be discharged, someone could have a lot of debt and die and, you know, your your debts aren't taken on to your, um, your descendants. Um, so there, there's a lot of ways that debt can be retired, you know, um, I'm sure there are ones that I don't don't know about. Um, so uh, one other little fact the about the Federal Reserve, they're in charge of ordering money from the United States Mint. So if uh, if there's a need for more $100 bills or $2 bills or whatever, the Federal Reserve's job is to go order those from the Mint, and then the Mint will go print them, and then the Federal Reserve will distribute them out to the different banks. Um, the, the Federal Reserve is a public entity with a quasi private part. So it's, it's more government than not government, but it's kind of a little bit private because Congress chartered it and they oversee it. And the president nominates the, the Federal Reserve chair, the head of the Federal Reserve bank. So all that's government stuff, right? It's, it's created by the government. Um, and membership is required. Um, like I said, if you're going to be a member bank and you kind of need to be, you have to hold shares in your regional bank in the Federal Reserve System. So there is some kind of private membership in the Federal Reserve System. Um, but it's mostly a public public um, entity with the semi-quasi-private piece to it. And the government can restrain it or change it as needed. Um, If you're wondering about what happens to all this money that the Federal Reserve makes on their loans that they make to these banks, because they they make them on a pretty regular basis, banks will lend each other money overnight, and if they can't get enough from each other, they'll go to the discount window and get get their loan from the Federal Reserve. Um, So they do get interest, but the profits are spent on staff, the Federal Reserve staff, because they have a large staff. and dividends out to their member institutions. Anything that's left over goes to the United States Treasury, which is interesting because that's in a tax 
but it's an extremely indirect tax. It's a tax on a loan, given on a loan, and you take the interest, and you take some stuff out, and what's left over becomes uh, tax money. So it's, it's a pretty interesting thing to consider that that tax exists. Um, so I guess last few things to talk about here with the Federal Reserve. Uh, one is Federal Reserve uh, Bank of I believe it's St. Louis has a system called FRED. If you're looking to look up economic data, they've got a ton of charts where you can look at you know, housing prices in cities, you can look at um, in- interest rates, you can look at the price of different commodities. Really cool stuff. Um, so just, you know, that's something to check out. And um, if you're if you're trying to kind of do your own economic analysis, I know I have been lately and I've found some pretty interesting stuff. Uh, one other thing. I mentioned $2 bills a minute ago. Many people believe that $2 bills are rare. Some people have never seen them. And they've certainly never seen a bunch together. And if you go try to spend them, some people will look at you a little funny. But the $2 bill is still being printed. And there's some weird reasons, historically, from from what I understand, that it used to be associated with some um, not-so-wholesome activities like horse betting. And other things, and so you know, two dollar bills weren't seen as the the best thing to have on your person, but you can still get two dollar bills. And I think the two dollar bill is one of the coolest looking bills you can get because it has this uh, it's Thomas Jefferson on the front. On the back, it's got this uh, cool picture of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and it's still like that old 1976 design, which looks pretty distinct from any bill except for the one. The one hasn't been updated in a long time, but it's very different than you know the the twenty or the fifty or the hundred. So pretty, it's a pretty cool uh, bill, and if you want to get some, all you have to do is go to your bank and ask for $2 bills and be willing to wait around. So what I've done many times is I've gone to the bank, gone to the ATM outside, come inside and said, hey, could I get change for this in twos? And I've never been turned down. I saw some video where they went around and they did get turned down, but that's never been my experience. Um, sometimes if I'm getting you know $20 worth, I'll have them in the till. If not, sometimes they'll make you wait to the side while they go down to the vault and they'll grab some fresh ones from the vault, and then you can walk out with your $2 bills. It's pretty fun to go around and, and leave tips in $2 bills or you know pay for your, your uh, sandwich with $2 bills because you know, no one's seen them, and so you're, you're out there trying to get them to circulate, and it's just kind of a cool thing to cool thing to do, and it's it's kind of fun. So next time you have a chance to go to your bank, um, you know, go in and get some $2 bills and have some fun with it. You know, I like I like the way it looks, like I said, so I'm trying to get it in back in circulation. So I, I haven't done it in a while, but I have many times gone to the bank, gotten change for in twos, and then gone around and spent them. So I, I hope this has been informative for you and that you've learned some things. Um, if you've got feedback for me, be sure to reach out to me on the website. Uh, the email address is there. You have to look for it because try not to get spam. I appreciate you listening tonight. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brighterevening.com.